You're in the water loop. Waterloop is made possible in part by grants from Springpoint Partners and the Walton Family Foundation. Waterloop. Hey, this is Travis with Waterloop. You've probably heard me talk about how much I like High Sierra showerheads for their incredible water efficiency, their solid metal construction, and because it's a small business based in the U.S. with owner David Malcolm having a commitment to water and energy conservation. While I hope you value my opinion, there are some pretty major endorsements you should listen to. High Sierra Showerheads were rated Best Showerhead by Popular Science and CNET, and Best Low Flow Showerhead by Wirecutter. If you go on Amazon, you'll see that High Sierra gets the highest ratings, 4.5 to 5 stars, from all the satisfied customers. Use promo code LOOP20 for 20% off at HighSierraShowerHeads.com. The Waterloop Podcast is sponsored by Flume. It's the perfect device for tracking your home's water use in real time on your smartphone. It's so easy to use. You just attach a small device to your water meter using a band, the same way you put a watch on your wrist. Then you connect to Wi-Fi, you download the app, and you're up and running. It's as simple as that. You don't need a plumber. You don't need to cut into any of your pipes or water lines. Very easy to set up. Then you can set water budgets, how much you want to use each day or week. It'll keep track of that. It'll tell you what's going on in your house with water use minute by minute. It'll send alerts to you if there's excessive water use or if it suspects a leak. In fact, when I installed Flume at my house, it told me almost right away about a leak. I was losing a gallon of water every six minutes. I'm honestly not sure when I would have found that without Flume. You can use promo code WATERLOOP for 10% off at flumewater.com. You're in the Waterloop. Welcome to Waterloop. This is Travis. This is one of our episodes focusing on the North Carolina coast. I live in Wilmington, North Carolina, and like to explore some of the water issues uh, here in my community. We're going to be talking about living shorelines for this episode. Very excited to be joined by three very knowledgeable guests on this topic. Uh, we have Carter Smith, who is a postdoctoral associate at Duke University. Carter, thanks for coming on. Thanks so much for having me. We have Lexia Weaver, coastal scientist and central regional manager with the North Carolina Coastal Federation. Thank you for joining. Thank you. And Daniel Gavoni, policy analyst at the North Carolina Department of Environment and Natural Resources. Daniel, appreciate you joining as well. Thank you, Travis. All right. And I know you all have worked together for a number of years on this topic. So if at any point you just want to kick me aside and take over the conversation, that's fine. Um, when we're talking about the shoreline of North Carolina, obviously people are familiar with all the beaches, right? And we're not talking about that as part of this conversation. When we're talking about hardened shorelines and living shorelines and the issues around them, we're talking about all those kind of waterways that are on the backsides of our barrier islands islands and the, the, the marshes and the dif- different communities that are on sounds and, and all that. Is that generally kind of what, what we're talking about when we're looking at managing these shorelines? Yeah, I think that's an accurate statement. I mean, Lexington way in a typically called the estuarine system. Hmm. And, and, and these are where areas we're talking about shoreline stabilization. Okay. 
Yeah, so sound front areas, creeks, um, so nothing on the ocean side for <laughs> living shorelines. Yeah, absolutely. But that's not to say that there aren't some awesome green options for protecting ocean front shorelines. Mm. Okay. Uh, but yeah, everything we're talking about today is mostly focused on those protected estuarine shorelines. Gotcha. Question is, um, so what are what are the challenges, um, and and what's the history? You know, those were all natural at one point, right? A couple hundred years ago. What caused people to start to need to manage them in a different way to put up hardened shorelines, and and what does that mean? What how how have these parts of our kind of shorelines been transformed? It's maybe important to start off by saying that coastal erosion is a a very natural process uh, would be happening with or without humans. Um, and it's part of the way that coastal ecosystems change and transform over time. Uh, but erosion becomes really problematic when somebody puts a house in a fixed location and they want to be able to keep it in that same location for long periods of time with storm events passing by over the years, um, particularly in the context of, of rising sea levels. And a lot of North Carolina's coast is highly erosive, so it's really changing, especially barrier island systems that are made largely of, of sand and plant communities. So historically, they've shifted a lot after, um, after storms and, and quite a bit over time. And so the, the traditional way that people have kind of thought this changing of the shoreline is by erecting some kind of hard fixed structure like a seawall or a bulkhead, um, which can really stop some of those erosive uh, processes and, and keep the shoreline in more of a, a fixed position instead of in, in this state of flux. And I guess that in addition to that natural erosion, you know, we get lots of storms, right? Whether it's just the regular coastal storms or hurricanes. And so people have wanted to protect from that. And then we have now kind of rising sea levels that's picked up over the past few decades, which has just put further pressure on, on the shorelines. Um, so when and why and how did we realize that, wait a minute, the hardened shorelines aren't necessarily the best thing? When, when was that kind of... I guess, discovered and, and, and the, the direction start to change on that? Um, I would say, what, 20, 25 years ago, you all would agree with that. Um, the other states like Maryland and Virginia, they started doing these living shoreline approaches and then they kind of have, have trickled down to this state, um, to North Carolina. So um, I would say within the last 20, 25 years that people were, re, you know, realizing agencies, scientists, and then a lot more research has been done on living shorelines is that the area in front of bulkheads is not productive. It's not a good fish habitat. It's not a good marsh habitat, you know, and, and that area over time is lost because of the wave energy um, that they experience there, that they continue to experience. Um, so I think, and then you know, as more and more living shorelines were installed in North Carolina, research um, indicated and, and just from observing these shorelines is how long they um, can last and how they help to protect and maintain the existing habitat. So that remains intact. And, you know, it changes through time, but it's still habitat. Um, so just, just more and more of the demonstration projects. And now we, we're doing them more routine that they're you know, we have a very a lot of demonstration projects that show the success of living shorelines compared to bulkheads um, through storms for habitat, um, and that you know they're more cost effective as well. 
I'd, I'd like to circle back to that point about the drawbacks of the hardened shoreline. So if you could kind of expand on that a little bit, like why, why are they problematic? Yeah. So what you see here is um, there's a, it's a living shoreline at Hammocks Beach State Park. It was a bulkhead replacement project. So this is the same location. It had this um, bulkhead, and then that was replaced with what you see on the left, which is a living shoreline. And what happens uh, is when that wave energy comes in and hits that bulkhead, that wave energy has nowhere to go. So it hits a wall, right? Um, and so that energy comes back with the wave, and then over time – you end up scouring out um, all of the habitat in front of the, the bulkhead or seawall. And the difference with a living shoreline is when the waves um, come through a living shoreline, which is you know what you see here. So basically it's this offshore structure, slightly offshore structure that can be comprised of either rocks or oyster shells. And then the area landward of it is planted with these um, native um, marsh grasses. And so what happens when the waves come in is that that energy is dissipated and it's scattered across the site. So it doesn't hit like this wall. So that natural habitat or restored habitat is maintained um, throughout the process. Um, so it's just definitely much more eco-friendly it lasts longer, provides great habitat. It also helps to improve water quality um, through the filtering ability of, you know, the oyster shells as well as the, the salt marsh grasses as well, too. The, the living shorelines, um, and, and, you know, you've mentioned, I think, some of the benefits there. Um, what's, what's unique to the conditions in North Carolina that these really help with? So th there's a, a lot of areas, as Carter mentioned, that are eroding, unfortunately, with the increased frequency of tropical storms and hurricanes that we've been having. Unfortunately, it's very rare anymore to find a shoreline that's not experiencing some signs of erosion. Mm. Um, so that's definitely what, what it tackles, is it makes these shorelines um, more stable and reduces further erosion of the shoreline. You mentioned uh, places along the coast where there's really kind of concerted efforts to to use more living shoreline. Where has some of that Where has some of that been taking place? Um, so we've done a lot of projects um, here in Carteret County, which is um, where Moorhead City, Swansboro, the areas down east. Um, and uh, part of that's been because that's the region that I work in and my focus is living <laughs> shorelines in this area. So we've done a lot here, um, but they've been done up and down the coast. And and Carter can definitely speak to this is like the domino effect and neighbors. And once we're, you know, if we're out there building a shoreline, the neighbor will come out and be like, what are you doing? And, you know, I want one of those. Um, so it's definitely a domino effect. And um, once they see how functional it is, um, you know, it kind of trickles down and, and the, the benefits, um, you know, tend to go from one neighbor to the next. And that's where you get the really good effects of uh, multiple people doing this type of approach. And let's see, we also want to add the, the maintenance factor versus a bulkhead riprap. I mean, the, the research has shown past storm events um, that these structures are easier to maintain and last longer versus having to repair a bulkhead or riprap. Is that correct, Lexi? Yes, definitely. And yeah, Carter and um, Dr. Uh, Rachel Kitman also, they've done some studies. I, I'll yeah, so I guess to, to sum up what a lot of my research has been focused on, um, was to start 
trying to answer this question of, of how can we get more homeowners to build living shorelines? And so we did a lot of surveys of waterfront homeowners in North Carolina to understand what they prioritized when choosing how to stabilize their shoreline. So from um, a whole bunch of different attributes. And overall, we generally found that homeowners care most about the effectiveness of the structure at reducing erosion, uh, the durability of the structure over time, and the cost. And then a pretty distant fourth is the ecological impact. And so that kind of said to me early on in my research that if we wanted to promote these structures to more homeowners, then we needed to be able to demonstrate that they were really effective, really durable, um, and they weren't going to cost you know, a ton of money in the long term. And so um, a lot of my research can be summed up with this figure right here. Um, so these photographs were taken um, by our colleague, uh, Dr. Gitman. And up on the top, you've got on the left side, um, an aging concrete bulkhead. Uh, and then on the bottom left, you have a brand new living shoreline that's just been constructed. And so you can see there's sort of this offshore sill made out of um, disaggregated uh, granite rocks. And then there's some new marsh planting that's been installed right behind that. Uh, and it's important to note here that these two sites are only separated by about 100 meters. So they're oh, wow. almost right next to each other. And then the next series that you see here um, is the day after Hurricane Irene hit the coast uh, back in 2011. And so the top right photo is showing that the, the aging bulkhead that we saw along that shoreline has been completely ripped out. And they've lost about two truckloads of sand and it cost the homeowners about $20,000 to replace this shoreline. Uh, meanwhile, comparing that to the photograph in the bottom right-hand corner, the living shoreline looks almost identical um, to the way that it looked uh, before the storm. And so this sort of sums up um, trends that we've seen throughout the state more generally, uh, that living shorelines have the potential to be more resilient to storm events uh, and require less maintenance investment over time. That's an incredible sales pitch right there. That yeah. that sequence of sh of photos, you show that to somebody, and and that's just incredible. How, like you right. said, that bul that bulkhead was completely obliterated, just just gone. Uh, but then the living shoreline persevered, like like nature does. Um, I, I was really curious uh, going back to the the locations, and I do want to talk about the homeowner side too. Um, you know, I'm I guess Carteret County's got a lot of these little waterways and little places that kind of lend themselves to use of living shoreline. Um, less so maybe down in the Wilmington Cape Fear area where I am. Is that fair to say? I think maybe it's also important to point out that this term living shoreline is really kind of an umbrella term that covers mm. a whole suite of different techniques. So for really low energy um, shorelines, you might just be able to plant some marsh grass and restore a marsh and that's your living shoreline. And that helps to protect your eroding coast. Whereas on more um, on shorelines that have higher rates of erosion, where you have a lot of boat traffic, say, and a lot of wave and, and uh, wind wave action, you might want a much more highly engineered structure like what we showed in the um, Lexia's last slide. So something that combines maybe a, a granite sill with marsh plantings and oyster restoration. And so I just point that out to say, you know, it depends on what technique you use in which location. Hmm. Um, and so, yeah, some locations just might need a slightly more engineered strategy. 
these approaches can definitely be used all along the state of North Carolina. It just depends, like you know, Carter said, on where you are and what the conditions are as to what material you'll use or um, the de- you know how they'll be designed. Um, but they certainly can be used um, up and down the coast. Um, but um, you know, areas like Bogue Sound, where the areas where um, the water conditions are, uh, the wave energy is low to moderate. That is kind of um, an ideal location for putting in uh, living shorelines, I would say. Um, yeah. So that's where you find most of them um, versus, and, you know, areas that are deeper, you know, for example, or have really, ex- you know, crazy wave energies where um, a living shoreline wouldn't um, be able to be supported. So. Sure. So the homeowners and property owners, this has become more popular or accepted or, or more supported by folks as they see it be proven, as they see their neighbors do it successfully? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, our, our phones are ringing off the hook. Um, we, you know, barely have enough time to, to get back with everyone. Hmm. Um, so the interest, you know, people are seeing how they work, um, and how well they work, how, and there's also opportunities, um, that are incentives for people to put them in. So there's financial opportunities. Um, there's some grants that, um, are available at times for, uh, providing cost share assistance to landowners that want to put in these things. Um, and the coastal federation and other groups, you know, we also provide, um, technical assistance as well as permitting assistance, um, to, to put these structures in. And, uh, you know, our goal is for this to be the norm. Mm-hmm. We want, you know, if, if someone has a shoreline erosion problem that they look to living shorelines before they consider anything else, um, that's kind of our, our goal because of the habitat value. So ideally, um, that's what we, we would want to see. And, and we're seeing that a little bit. We're just, you know, still far from from that, but we're working on it and we're trying to increase our education efforts so that people are aware of this and trying to um, work with contractors and engineers directly so that, instead of recommending a bulkhead when they're called for a job, they'll say, Hey, have you thought about living shorelines? And, and, and we're getting there little by little. Um, it's a process. That's for sure. It's kind yeah, of no, change, things- changing the mentality because you know, everyone likes that manicured lawn and, yeah. um, and the bulkhead and seawall. So, yeah. Um, you, you know, you mentioned the incentives and assistance. I also was curious from Daniel, you know, what role, uh, you know, government policies have in living shorelines? You know, what, what are the regulations and how have they kind of changed to help be part of the incentive? Sure. You know, in North Carolina, we uh, permit development activities on the coast in two forms, typically major permits and general permits. And the major permit is a 75-day process, um, more detail, goes out for review for resource agencies. But we also have a general permit, which is basically a streamlined permit that can be issued in a couple of days. And these are for activities that the resource agencies, scientists, marine science community have felt comfortable. They see it all the time that the impacts are, are limited and they're, they're, they're okay with not having to review those projects. So back to living shorelines, going back about 2005, <clears throat> we tried to create a general permit for marsh sales type of living shoreline to help streamline it to be able to provide that as an incentive to the property owner to say hey you could get this permit in a couple days if you want to um, put this shoreline stabilization method on your shore the problem though at that time was a lot of resource agencies had still had a lot of concerns this is back in 2005 with you know how far can the rock material be put offshore you know trading one type of habitat for another 
um, any navigational impacts this could have, um, and are these structures actually suitable? Um, but as Lexi and Carter have explained with time, it's been proven. And, um, and a lot of those resource agencies' concerns were removed. And so um, a few years ago, we were able to finally create a general permit that was streamlined. Um, and so that kind of – and it's also an equal playing field for bulkheads. And that's one thing I forgot to mention, you know, that bulkheads had always had a general permit. And so you had a property owner have a bulkhead, he could get that permit in a couple of days. Or if he wanted a marshal, he had to go through the major permit process, which would take 75 well, plus days sometimes, um, so that we were able to kind of level out the playing field. And that's one thing we try to do in regulatory and policy, was just try to level the playing field out so um, the properties are going to make a choice. Yeah, no, that, that that's great that that's the case. Um, the, all the gaps and concerns have kind of been addressed from a, from a science and management perspective, or there's still more research to be done, still looking at, looking at things? I've heard, and I'll let Carter weigh in, I think there's still some concerns out there. I do. I think, um, you know, there's SAV, there's certain habitats, submerged aquatic vegetation that's out there that we still want to protect. And so um, by putting a marsill offshore, you might have impacts um, to those those resources um, in, in those habitats. So I think that's stuff we're still working with. And, um, and Lexi Carter, please weigh in, you know, from the science perspective on, on that. <clears throat> Yeah, I think there's definitely still work to be done. Um, I think we've made great strides in the last couple of decades showing that living shorelines can be really beneficial for fish populations. They can be more resilient to storm events. Uh, they can be preferred by some homeowners aesthetically. Uh, but whether or not every type of living shoreline works everywhere all the time or which conditions um, they work best in, I think is still a major uh, knowledge gap. So understanding, yeah, a little bit more about how to build the best type of living shoreline in different environments. Um, and I also think, like Lexia said, this is a, a relatively new concept. We've been building living shorelines in North Carolina for about 25 years. And so we don't have a ton of long-term data hmm. to understand how these structures are going to perform over a 50-year time frame and, and how that might be affected by changing rates of sea level rise or increased storminess. So um, lots of good work being done, lots of good work still to do, I think. <laughs> Lexia, what's your, uh, what are your thoughts on, on kind of looking forward and any knowledge gaps or concerns? Yeah, I mean, um, We've uh, done some work and are currently doing some work with like testing different kinds of materials that can be used. Um, so we have used oyster bags quite a bit, um, but the mesh is plastic. And although they do function really well in the marine environment and they function well for living shorelines, um, we realize it's not the ideal material to be putting in our waterways. Um, so we are trying to work with some companies. Um, so uh, Biomason, uh, Filtrex, um, uh, that the name escapes me for, for some other, you know, Sandbar Oyster Catcher of, is a big one. Um, and just trying to see if we can, you know, find the most environmentally friendly product that will last long enough before it degrades. Um, to allow, you know, the oyster reef to get established or to allow the marsh grass to get established. So um, researching those different kinds of options and how they respond in the marine environment is definitely a need um, that that we need, you know, moving forward. And then also, you know, how um, things are going to keep up with sea level rise. And that's, um, you know, some of the, the research that's being proposed um, in, in, in the future would, would answer, it would help answer. Yeah. I, yeah, I mean, I don't know if we 
spent enough time talking about the benefits in the beginning, but I mean, just reminded me that it's not just, you know, uh, better for that property or that homeowner that, uh, you know, that you get, you get habitat for, for all kinds of critters. If you've got grasses there, you can actually add oyster to the oyster population. And, um, so there's a lot there. And I guess if you're using grasses, sometimes they can migrate with sea level rise too. I mean, that's mm-hmm. a, a hope. Can it keep up with the rate mm-hmm. of sea level rise? So a lot, a lot going on there for sure. If people are interested in learning more, um, they want to just learn more about living shorelines or they're interested in really looking into how to put them in or what incentives are out there, where should people look? Um, so our, our website has a living shoreline page um, at www.nccoast.org. Um, and you can go to our Living Shoreline page and it has some resources, uh, one of which is the Living Shorelines Academy um, that has a lot of resources, both for homeowners, but also for marine contractors. Um, and then we also have um, just new hot off the press is a Living Shorelines email address. So basically, people can send an email to livingshorelines at nccoast. Dot org with their particular concerns, send us pictures, um, and we'll try to reach them as soon as possible and provide them with that um, information, guidance, um, send them along to a contractor, you know, if they want to know where to buy plants, just kind of provide them with some information that's more specific to their, their shoreline as well. Um, and, you know, we're trying, like I said before, to get more and more of these contractors involved. Um, and we, you know, I just want to put a, a plug in there for um, RS Restoration Systems, RS Shorelines, because they really have helped us to increase the amount of shorelines that we're putting in. Because um, we used to do these a lot with volunteers, and but we just got so much demand that it was hard to keep up with the number of projects. So they um, really helped us to increase um, the amount of shorelines that are being put in, which in turn is going to just, you know, continue that trickling effect. Um, so, so they're, so they're one of those firms that's, they're one of those firms that's an advocate, right? Um, that's kind of mm-hmm. letting people know about this option. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. And they can be um, a, a good uh, way to, you know, if you contact them, they'll be able to um, guide you in the right direction as well. So they're helping to help me with the multiple calls to, you know, kind of help out with that uh, so that everyone's um, needs are addressed. Okay. Well, you've got a ton of in info there. I'm sorry, interrupt. No. Our, our coastal reserve program also does training events mm-hmm. uh, for realtors That's and marine right. contractors. Um, we've been trying to get out and reach out to them where we try to show and prove um, and show them more sales of living shorelines, specifically on Piper's Island. Um, and we do, we, we have had a good turnout. That's interesting you mentioned realtors because you want them to understand what this feature is and, and so they can explain it, huh? Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. And what about over there at Duke, Carter? Um, I'm sure people can dig into all your research and, and findings. Uh, I guess the Living Shorelines Academy that Lexia mentioned that's through um, Restore America's Estuaries, I think, right, Lexia? Yes. Yeah. Um, that's a great resource for um, information for homeowners, and it's also a, a database of published research on living shorelines. Um, so that's a great place to go if you're interested in actually going straight to the to the research source. Um, and besides that, the, the resources that I use or send homeowners to are the ones that Lexia and Daniel just mentioned. Fantastic. Well, uh, thank you all for all this information. Really appreciate it. Um, hope it can get out there and, and help increase the living shorelines. Uh, I'm a big fan of them myself. And uh, 
So we'll have to get up there to Carteret County sometime soon and, and see a little bit more of it in action. But uh, Carter and Lexi and Daniel, thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks, everyone, for listening to today's episode. A special thanks to Waterloop supporters, Spring Point Partners, and the Walton Family Foundation. The Waterloop Podcast is sponsored by High Sierra Showerheads, the smart, stylish way to save energy, water, and money while enjoying a powerful shower. Save 20% with promo code WATERLOOP at HighSierraShowerheads.com. Waterloop is also sponsored by Flume, the smart water monitor that tracks your home's water use in real time and provides data on your smartphone. Save 10% with promo code WATERLOOP at flumewater.com. If you like Waterloop, please subscribe to the YouTube channel or your favorite podcast platform. Follow us on social media and visit waterloop.org to sign up for updates. Waterloop, Waterloop, Waterloop.